All right, all for animals fans, you'll have to forgive me. I might be a little bit rusty. It's been a while since I've recorded, but this interview and this guest, they are very special to me. Jennifer Blau has written the resource for anyone working with animals in any kind of caring capacity. Welfare, veterinary, hell, even us groomers, I feel, can benefit an awful lot from this. So I'm going to go ahead and pass the baton on to Jennifer, and I hope everyone gets as much out of this interview as I did. So thank you, Jen, for coming on with us today. I'm, I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, so my name is Jen Blau. I am a licensed professional counselor who is certified in compassion fatigue, pet loss, and trauma. I own a counseling clinic in Southeast Michigan, and I also provide a lot of compassion fatigue resources to the animal welfare animal welfare community. And one of those resources is I am the author of To Save a Starfish, a compassion fatigue workbook for the animal welfare warrior. Wonderful resource. I'm absolutely thrilled about it. Thank I have you. a couple of copies since we are going to be doing our giveaway of one of the copies. Um, so what got you involved in your very, very specific niche? It feels like there's there's got to be a story in there. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a backstory there. So in my 20, well, I, I've been involved to kind of some degree or another in animal rescue, animal welfare, animal rights. I actually attended my first protest um, with my grandmother, um, who That's was so a very wonderful. progressive animal rights activist. And um, so I attended my first protest with her as a kid, and it kind of evolved from there. In my 20s, I worked professionally in a shelter um, burned out and then left the field and went and did, I don't know, went and did something, was drawn back into it and became an animal patrol officer. And again, burned out. That's and a really big had, responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and the thing is, I, I had no idea what was going on with me. I thought, oh, I'm depressed. I'm just, you know, I'm just not cut out for this line of work, you know, fill in the blank. I'm a weak person. I'm character flaw, blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't until I decided to go back to school to become a therapist. And the reason I, I went back to school is because um, I suffered my own pet loss and it was absolutely devastating. And there weren't really any resources um, that were out there that I could find to kind of help me through that. So I thought, well, I'll go back and be the resource. Well, long story short, our, one day our professor was talking about this concept that therapists need to be, uh, be aware of, and it's called compassion fatigue. He's describing and he's like naming off all the symptoms. And it's like, oh my God, that like this light bulb in my head just exploded. I'm like that's what was going on with me this whole time. It wasn't necessarily depression. It wasn't that I was a weak person. It was that I was struggling with compassion fatigue and burnout. And so I said to myself right then and there, as soon as I graduate and get my license, Besides the pet loss, this is the population that I'm going to devote my life to. And so here we are today. That's, I mean, that's such a an up and down type story, but it's so inspiring yeah. that I, I love you saying you wanted to become what you needed. That's 
such a wonderful way to yeah. look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the ways to really combat com compassion fatigue is to find meaning. I mean, one of the ways to recover from trauma in general is to find meaning in it. And, and finally, I have been able to find meaning, meaning in all those struggles absolutely. by now being in a position to help others. That's, that's so wonderful. And I mean, it, I'm thrilled to have such an amazing resource available for all of us working with animals. I mean, it really is a very disenfranchised form of grief. And I mean, even the, the different kinds of burnout and compassion fatigue, most people don't seem to grasp that our job is more than just playing with puppies and kitties all day. And, and so having this very specific tailored just to those of us working with animals, I feel like is a really huge step in the right direction of building that sense of community, that sense of, like you just said, you're not a weak person. You don't have this character flaw by not being able to handle just being, just having all this trauma dumped on you all the time and never being able to really sit with it and process it. Yeah, and, and you mentioned something really important. Um, you, you mentioned disenfranchised and disenfranchised grief, right? Yeah. This is a concept that I'm, I'm really trying to bring up um, more awareness to. I don't think we talk about it as much as maybe we should. So if you think about it, all the helping professionals are really susceptible to compassion fatigue. Doctors, nurses, therapists, firefighters, police officers, EMTs, and all those helping professionals are at risk of losing their patients or their clients or, or the people that they are charged with protecting. However, you think about veterinarians, vet techs, animal control officers, you know, this type of field, the, the animal care field, we lose our patients or our clients or those in our care at a much, much higher rate. Absolutely. You know, whether you are a euthanasia tech or you are an animal sanctuary owner and, and you lose the, the, the long-term residence in your care. Yeah. We lose our, our um, like I said, our patients, our clients, the yeah. most we're supposed to be protecting at a much, much higher rate. And unlike those other professionals, they may lose people, but they are, it's not at their hands, right? So like a veterinarian, exactly, yeah, exactly. Oftentimes we are the ones that have to actually take the lives and the suffering. Um, and, and that's, that's trauma in and of itself. If you think about it, absolutely. It's that really bittersweet type thing where on the one hand, you know, you're doing what's best, but on the other hand, it like kind of goes against everything that that instinctual drive to to keep someone going and everything like that and I mean you're right in like rescue type situations you could wind up having to euthanize a whole room full of animals from like a hoarding situation or something and that's I just don't see that ever being something a, a doctor for humans would ever have even remotely close to happening and it is, it's like that compounding effect of the, the grief where it's just like, oh my gosh, how can you possibly wade through one more traumatizing and emotionally charged event? Yeah, it's a real moral dilemma. It's like mm -hmm. the, the very ones we are, we signed up to protect, we, we oftentimes have to either take the lives of, or we, we have to let go of them. And that, like I said, that that's a form of trauma. 
It's a form of grief. And the problem is, is for, for whatever reason, whether it is disenfranchised grief, which, which basically means it's not widely accepted by society. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, sometimes we internalize that and we don't allow ourselves to grieve. Maybe yeah. we don't find that we have the time to grieve because we're so busy just going around putting out fires. We feel yeah. we don't have that time. Sometimes people are afraid if I open the floodgates... I'm never going to stop crying. Very valid point. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we all grieve in different ways, but, we, you know, sometimes we can be so afraid to process and so afraid to grieve that that we don't allow that space. And the problem is with trauma and grief, I mean, they just don't go away on them. On the, no, definitely they're, not. They're, they're going to come out and they're going to manifest in some way or another. Absolutely. Yeah. It's. I mean, the best thing that anybody can possibly do is just be given that emotional space and the resources to be allowed to kind of process that and also just a little bit of emotional support just you know that understanding of hey I get that this is really hard the rest of the world might not understand it but we do in this little circle here and I think that's so invaluable and underrated yeah I mean one of the best things you can do for someone is just to validate Yes. To validate that the grief is real and, and to normalize it. You know, what you're going through is normal. It means you care a lot. Absolutely. I mean, even my ho my co-host Peter and I, we're just groomers. Uh, we've both worked in different areas of the animal industry. He's been in vet med before, as have I. I've been in shelters and rescue environments, pretty much every kind of animal-related job that you can have at least I've had and even now just as groomers there's less of that like immediate life and death consequences involved but at the same time Peter and I especially we cater more to the elderly and more special needs um, pets because we are mobile so they are the pets that can't handle the usual loud noisy and long like day-long environment at a brick and mortar salon so since becoming mobile, I've had so many more client dogs cross the rainbow bridge. I've had so many more dogs that I've, I mean, I've spent long, long hours working to rehabilitate those dogs to just be able to trust a groomer. And then over time, they eventually grow old and they're no longer with us. And it's deeply upsetting because it's like they become part of your own little fuzzy family. And it's really hard for other people to understand that concept sometimes. Well, you've developed a bond. You've developed a relationship with that animal. Absolutely. And it's the thing just with like animals the is they're, they're like children. Even if even if they're an elderly animal, they're, they're like children. Yeah. Children are not, it's unnatural for children to go before we do. Absolutely. That's what, in my opinion, makes pet loss so difficult is they're so innocent. They're so childlike and they're, we're supposed to outlive children. Yeah. I love that, that, that uh, comparison though, because it is no matter how old they are, they are always that innocent childlike goofy yeah. and sweet, just ball of love. And it does, it feels very wrong for us to survive them. And it, it should most definitely be that they get to live these happy, pure, sweet little lives forever. Uh, I mean, just based on their 
goodness alone. But yeah, and and I mean, I know a lot of people don't like the whole comparison of pets to children and everything, but they really are in a way similar in that you always have to be preparing for and caring for all of their even just basic needs. And they don't have, they don't grow in the more like complicated types of education, like a a human being can, but that makes them more like a little toddler their whole lives. And it's so sweet and endearing that way. And it is, it's very hard to always be losing clients, client dogs that you've spent years and years bonding with and feeling like they are part of your own little fuzzy family and then don't even get me started on personal pet loss because I'll cry for days on that (laughs) yeah we'll we'll, we'll both just be in a puddle here (laughs) yes (laughs) so I I love too that you're helping to bring more awareness to the burnout aspect of things as well because I mean even just up until a few years ago really burnout was kind of just never talked about and it was always this hustle 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 mindset it still definitely is but at least there's some there's some awareness trickling in and so before you had talked about uh the varying like unhealthy ways that the burnout the compassion fatigue the just unprocessed grief and trauma of it all can come out in very unhealthy ways. And so what are some of the alternatives that the employers, the practice owners, the shelter owners, rescues, what have you, what are some of the ways that they can provide that emotional care and support for their their humans working with them to keep them okay? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we do live in this kind of, um, you know, really fast paced culture um, and, and a lot of people still to this day really wear their busyness almost like a, a badge of honor right? or, or even wear their burnout as a badge of honor. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot in, in this, in these fields, right? The helping fields, yeah. um, even that the animal helping fields. And, and that's just, I mean, it, it's a recipe for burnout. It is. You know, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's, there's things that an individual can do, but also there's a lot that the employer can do. And so when we talk about compassion fatigue, we're talking about kind of more the emotional side of things. It's mm-hmm. the the effect of working with suffering or traumatized animals. So yeah. that's kind of more the compassion fatigue. The burnout really comes from our interaction with our environment. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the employer can really kind of step in and help out with that. Yeah. So one thing that leadership really wants to focus on is having a uh, a work a positive workplace culture not a toxic workplace culture yes. um, and, and what i mean by that is you know um i'm sure we've all been there where there's been the workplace bully um we've all been in places where there's a lot of you know backstabbing and drama and gossip and just just overall negativity mm-hmm. all that does is create what we call organizational compassion fatigue. So compassion fatigue starts spreading like a cancer. It's it's the perfect recipe for burnout. It's the perfect recipe for high turnover. Yeah. And the animal care is going to suffer in the end. And in the, in the end, the reputation of the organization is also going to suffer. So 
there's so many reasons we really need to start taking this seriously. Well, and, and we've I, even got the the absolutely traumatizing examples of like the the youngest crazy cat lady um, that everybody kind of knows from Instagram. That's it's completely preventable if we take care of the people who are working so hard to take care of all of these helpless fuzzy little creatures but then the, the humans doing the care for them they get kind of swept to the side and forgotten about to as you said earlier put out more fires and we i mean it is extremely helpful if there's employers organizations everyone that you can usually turn to for like human caregivers and whatnot if those types of resources are available to animal caregivers and, and everything as well to hopefully help with that. And then, yeah, the, the workplace thing, that's kind of the, the only thing that your employer has any kind of control over. And I mean, I've worked at some really toxic places where the environment was so just like dripping in gossip and drama instead of anybody actually just being like, Hey, I didn't like that. Just don't do that again, kind of thing. And stuff like that, where it would just be so simple and easy to just be able to kind of like resolve problems in a more adult and healthy way. <laughs> Things yeah, are just and, kind of running around the gossip mill. And the problem is, is these types of jobs, I mean, they're, as we've been talking about, they're difficult enough. Yeah. No, you we don't need to make it worse. <laughs> exactly. Why are we doing this? And so the problem is, is, you know, it's, it's hard to trust anyone. It's hard to really feel like you can build relationships with people. If, if there's no trust there, if there's a constant revolving door of high turnover, um, it's hard to, it can be hard to take care of yourself when, when your own supervisor or boss, maybe, um, is, is setting a bad example. So I've seen a lot in, you know, both personally and in organizations I've worked with, the leadership doesn't take breaks. They don't take vacations. They don't take lunch breaks. They don't do the, the, they're overworking. And so the staff under them quite often feels like, Oh God, I, I can't take a sick day. I can't yeah. take a lunch break. I can't go home on time, Yeah, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's going to make me look bad. So mm -hmm. leadership really has to, and, and if leadership is, is suffering from burnout and compassion fatigue, they, they've got to address that. If you want to care, if you want to lead others and care for the caregivers, which is part of leadership. Absolutely. I, I have, you know, and depending on how many interns we have at one time, between my therapist, my interns and my admin staff, I have 20 to 25 people that I have to watch out for. Yeah, and absolutely. These are therapists. Do I want burned out therapists working with clientele? Absolutely. No. That is my responsibility. Their yeah. mental health is partly my responsibility. And so you want to make sure that they're showing up in the best absolutely. ways possible. Yeah. yeah, because just like animal welfare work, my therapists are dealing with life and death situations. I want absolutely. them to be in the, the, their best state of mind. Absolutely. And one of the things I've done is I've created a workplace wellness program. And I'd, I'd love to tell you all about that if, if you're interested. Absolutely, please share. Yeah, yeah. So so let me just back this up and say one of the resources I've recently created is a virtual wellness program. And that is open to, so I have individual memberships and then organizations can get memberships too. And what I, I've based it on my own 
wellness program with my staff. So I'll just cover some of the highlights. So we have professional development assistance. So my staff can feel like they're constantly kind of up to speed and constantly, you know, um, engaged in with the, like continuing research. education. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So they can learn new skills and it just, it just keeps them on their toes and keeps them engaged in their work. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, we recognize birthdays. We recognize work anniversaries. We have company outings, for example, uh, our holiday party. We have it catered. We play games. I hire a, a massage therapist to come in and give oh, chair massages. That sounds heavenly. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, it's it's just a way for me to take care of them. We also do like these weekly challenges, uh, wellness challenges with prizes. Um, I have a wellness room that is devoted for just the staff. So in the wellness room, there's a massage chair, there's a recliner with a blanket, there's a yoga mat. Um, we have adult coloring books and puzzles and soft lighting and music and um, aromatherapy. I mean, it's just a, a place that they can go and kind of escape for a little while and just kind of recharge during the day. That's and fantastic. And you're working at a vet office or a, a grooming salon or a shelter, and you're like, we don't have an extra office. It doesn't matter. You can take a sure. take a closet, put in a, a meditation cushion, put in some music, some soft lighting. Boom! You got a place people can go and meditate or do some deep breathing or grab a coloring book and just just Absolutely. be themselves. Well, you and even if they don't have the physical space to yeah. devote to something like that, even just providing a little bit of extra emotional space, allowing people to go just take a 10 minute walk out in nature, clear their head. Encourage it. Yeah. yeah. Listen to some music. Create a walking club. And, yes. Oh, yes. You know, that create a walking club. At this time, you know, every day, whoever wants to, you know, kind of, or, or have multiple times so you don't have all these have gone at once, you know, multiple times a day you know, show up at the, at the front door and we're going to take a 10 minute walk. Yeah. We have a book club where once a month, you know, you all read the same book and then once a month you meet either in person or virtually and you discuss, you discuss the book. You yeah. A big old like punching bag in the book room. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There were days I, I probably, honestly, I probably would have used a punching bag every day. You know, I feel like I would like, too. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you can either like haul off and, and, hit a customer, <laughs> you know, because you've, you've lost your temper or you can just go, go out, take it out on the punching bag, you know? Yeah. Anybody yes. that tries to say there's not a lot of that anger. When oh, working with animals, they <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, when you're working with these innocent, helpless little beings and you're also having to deal with the humans that put them in yeah. a compromised position, you're going to get infuriated by exactly the, the suffering that you're witnessing all the time and yeah. I, I can see that being a great thing I also keep seeing on like some of the um groomer Facebook groups all over that they're doing like Friday morning yoga classes before the <laughs> salon opens and I just think that's fantastic yoga is kind of my thing I love it yeah. and so I love seeing that more people are taking those kinds of steps because it does it does more than just work for the mental health of the individual but it just it creates more of a symbiotic relationship between your staff and and the organization that they're working for and that's going to make them want to be more excited to work for you and with the animals they're going to actually want to be there every day engaged well. they're going to be loyal they're going to be dedicated it it's going to become more than oh, just a paycheck 
Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, and again, this it doesn't have to cost a lot of money, you know? So mm -hmm. for example, I, I recently created a, an adult coloring book called Coloring and Compassion Fatigue. And a lot of people tell me, oh, we have a bunch of copies in our break room. You know, so so get some colored pencils and some coloring books, get mm -hmm. some games in there, some puzzles in there, have a vending machine with, I don't know, healthy snacks. Yeah. <laughs> so, people are, so people are at their best, you know, I mean, yeah. just, there's so I could go on and on. Um, there's so many little inexpensive things that that employers can do for their staff to keep them Absolutely. engaged. And, and the thing is, is 80 percent of, of employees who have a workplace wellness program report that it makes them happier, more engaged, more likely to stay with the company. You can't argue with numbers like that. My goodness. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, so, it, and it shows that we care. Absolutely. We care about your physical health. We care about your mental health. Yes. And care about the, the culture and the image that you're yeah. your entire organization is putting out there. That's, yeah. that's a big deal too. Yes. What percentage of workplaces actually have these uh, wellness programs in place to take care of their employees? Yeah. So the latest statistic that I have read is 50%. And okay. that is not, we're not talking necessarily the animal care or animal welfare type, type jobs. We're talking just kind of like um, organizations, businesses, companies, kind of uh, in general, it's it's at about 50% right now. And the thing is, is, is younger, the younger generations coming up, they almost expect something like this. I mean, you can no longer yeah. get away with, oh, you have health benefits. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, you know? as they should, the, the workplace needs yeah. to change the way it's been, has been far too suffocating for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, e even if it's an EAP, you know, an employee yeah. assistance program where you have therapist who you know maybe there's 10 free sessions offered yeah. per year or when there is some type of crisis you have access to therapists who can come in and do crisis counseling or debriefing um, mm -hmm. which is another excellent way to not just sweep something under the rug but open up a safe place where people can say I'm struggling with what happened yeah you know, I, I've gone around and done a lot, both with animal care organizations and, and other type of businesses. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of crisis debriefing just to open up that space and go around the table and, and say, how are you feeling with this? Yeah. And then just, just allow them to talk and listen without judgment. Absolutely. You know, having a safe place, a safe space is, it's everything. Oh yeah. And I, I can definitely like, you're speaking to my soul with the <laughs> not wanting to sweep things under the rug. That's something that I struggle with so hard sure. where, you know, if there's something big that's happened, I'm going to need to talk about it because otherwise I'm just going to feel like lost in, in the sauce with it. It's going to be so chaotic that I'm going to feel like, am I the only one that's actually worried about this or something like yeah. that? And then that's a very isolating feeling. Yeah. And an already pretty isolating field. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the problem, like I mentioned before, grief and trauma, it's like you can stuff it down, but you can only stuff it down for so long, like a dormant volcano. You're, it's, it's, you're going to erupt one day. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to have those, those proper, healthy, constructive 
coping mechanisms before you get to that uh, Vesuvius point. <laughs> yeah, and I always think back and, you know, I, I have no regrets because, again, I've able to find meaning in, you know, what I went through before and then what I've been able to, to become. But I always wonder what would have happened if all these things that I'm talking about were in place when I was an ACO or when I was at the animal shelter. Had I known I was not the only one, would that have made the difference? Had my feelings been validated and normalized? Had we had a wellness program? Had we even had a compassionate fatigue workshop to bring awareness to it yeah even you just know, knowing I, what it was exactly <laughs> knowing it was actually for you <laughs> you know maybe yeah. that would have made the difference and you know I, I my dream um is that every single shelter and and any type of animal care organization brings awareness to this somehow whether it's a workshop a wellness program a, a you know a speaker whatever it is um, just you've, you've got to open that door. That's the first start. You've got to open the door. Absolutely. And I mean, I know that a lot of, of times the, one of the bigger, I guess, constraints for some like company, like smaller businesses or smaller rescues or smaller organizations in general might be that whole like initial investment. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love to speak on the fact that yes, it might be, you know, if you're carving out a special room in your practice or your salon or wherever it is, then yeah, you're giving up that space. But in the long run, you're also going to be reducing your turnover. You're going to be reducing possible like medical and mental health, like leaves of absence because of traumatic events and things like that. So I feel like it's, even more cost effective as well for a business to already have those things in place and then just be I guess one step ahead when the bad things are happening and you're just kind of a little bit more prepared to handle whatever it is that's just been thrown at you. Well it's it's really all about building resilience you know Mm -hmm. so building resilience within ourselves and also the organization building a resilient uh, workforce. And let, let me give you an example. So I don't know about, about you, but I live in the Midwest and we have harsh winters and every spring our roads are left with, with potholes. Yes. <laughs> right. So if you have a, um, a car that you've been taking really good care of, it's a sturdy car, it, you know, you, you can go over the pothole and, and come out of it okay you know, but let's say you have some old hoopty that you've never taken care of, you know, the one of the <laughs> wheels is practically falling off, the mufflers hanging off, and all of a sudden you hit a pothole, Th- that pothole might be like the, the last straw for your poor little car. Yeah. So the more resilient the car is, the more it's going to be able to kind of hit the pothole and move on or hit the speed bump and kind of move on. If, yes. if it's an old thing that has not been taken care of, you know, your, your, your wheels are going to fly off and you're, you know, the, the engine's going to drop out, the door's going to fall off and your <laughs> car is going to fall apart. Yeah. Right. So the same thing with, with, with building resilience in us, I, one of the best kind of pieces of advice I've ever gotten uh, was from tra- traumatologist, Eric Gentry. And he said to me, there's a difference between pain and suffering. Okay. Going into the pothole is pain. It's going to be painful. Sure. But if you're resilient, 
you feel the pain, you move on. Okay. Suffering is I hit the pothole and a giant sinkhole opens up in the earth and swallows my car. Yeah, not really coming back from that. <laughs> not coming back from that, or it's going to hurt for a long, yeah. long time. So I like suffering is being kind of stuck in the pain, just yeah. chronic, chronically. Like right? more of a quicksand, just kind of sucking you further into exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I like the or, comparison. That's yeah, very evocative. Is, I, I can't, I can't, there's nothing I can say to your listeners that is going to stop the pain. No. You lose a client, that's going to be painful. Yeah, if you absolutely. have to euthanize an animal, it's going to be painful. You you lose an animal during surgery, painful. But the more resilient you are, the more you can feel the pain, process the pain, and then be able to move on from the pain. Yeah. It's and all that, about that not getting sucked into yeah, it. Exactly. And, yeah. and trust me, this is coming from someone who has spent most of her life being stuck in that pain. I want to be perfectly transparent. And so that's why I'm now on the rooftops, like shouting my brains out to people about building resilience and bringing awareness to compassion fatigue and trying to, you know, to have these workplace wellness programs. It's like, it, it, it makes, it makes a difference. It, it, oh, it, it does. does. We absolutely, anyone in this field, we cannot take our mental health for granted. No, definitely not. We see too much we go through too much pain and, and we've got to constantly be managing it. Absolutely. I I love the message. I feel like there's so much hope buried in there. It, I mean, it's a very heavy conversation we're having here because these are very important and extremely, I mean, like life or death consequences that we're, yeah. we're discussing here, but there is so much that can be done and is already starting to be done. I'm, I'm very filled with hope that there are people out there like you who are looking out for all of the people who are, they've been following in your footsteps, just like you said, your inspiration came from burning out yourself multiple yeah. times. And that, I mean, if it happened to one person, it's got to be happening to droves of others. And just having anybody be able to point to something and say, oh my God, that explains what I've gone through. Yeah. This is so helpful. I mean, if you can help one person, I feel like it makes a difference. But I feel like yours is so wonderful of a resource that it's going to be way more helpful than just that one person. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, it's just the truth. I'm very excited. We're going to be hosting a, a giveaway as well of a copy of your book this uh, for this episode. So I'm super excited because I know that the few people that I've talked to about it, they've briefly heard about it, but didn't know exactly what type of resource it was. And I've been singing it from the rooftop <laughs> for you. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, I love what you're talking about with the, the whole, just having like a program just kind of automatically done. I, I didn't realize that you had something so, I guess, I, I don't even know the term for it, like well-automated maybe. Yeah, where and it, it's, you know, again, because the feedback I got is like, you know, gosh, we don't, we don't have time to, to run a wellness program. And so I actually have, uh, so for organizations, I have two kind of levels. One level, the, the top level is like all-inclusive, like the employee wins the challenge, I send out the gift card. 
kind of thing. Okay. The kind of uh, the lower level is I, I run the challenges, I provide the resources, I, I interact. And, and the cool thing about, well, I think the cool thing is I'm in there interacting and, and doing the challenges right along with the employees. Oh, sure. That's fantastic. So I'm trying to set that, you know, I'm trying to set the yeah. example too. The and also example. I got to take care of myself as well. Sure. Um, but, but anyways, getting, getting back to that, to the other kind of tier, if you will, um, the, the lower tier is where I run everything, but you provide the prizes. So for example, if you say, well, we want to control our own prizes and maybe that can look like um, company swag, you know, here's a hat, here's a t-shirt, here's a mug, or it can look like, oh, okay, well, we're going to give like um, an extra hour of PTO uh, for sure. the winner of this challenge, or, you know, we're going to... Um, you know, whoever um, gets the most points or whatever team gets the most points, we're going to have a pizza party um, for them. So, you know, if they want to divide their their participants up in teams. And sure. so it's really structured for whatever the organization needs. And like I said, I'm right there along with them, kind of participating, interacting and, and doing the challenge, most of the challenges uh, myself. Yeah. Yeah. So have you noticed, uh, have you noticed like a, a lot of positive response to that to you specifically, or like, I mean, I'm assuming that what you're doing, it has to be working very, very well, but have you gotten any like specific feedback on how it's helping other people? Yeah. So, so for example, um, <laughs> it's cute. I have one, I won't mention any names, but I have one participant who like, we had really early on, we had a push-up challenge. Okay. And I think the challenge was something like, you know, do do 10 push-ups for seven days in a row and you'll be entered into the the raffle. Okay. Um, and, and so and, and it could be anything. It could be I I posted all these different versions. It could be like wall push-ups or like modified push-ups, knee push-ups. Sure. I have a participant who to this day is doing daily push-ups. Awesome. And, and that's kind of the goal, right? It's it's we have different challenges, and the goal is for and I always say, I, I use the analogy of a toolbox, right? Yes. So at the end of each challenge, it's like, you know, whether or not you participated, I hope you found it helpful. If so, take it with you, put it in your toolbox. Sure. She has put this in her toolbox. I have other people who are like, you know, I never really took walks, but I felt really good when we did the walking challenge. And I've put it in my toolbox and, and I've incorporated that into my life. So, so the building idea better habits. Exactly. The idea yeah. is to introduce people to all these wellness habits, and then they pick and choose what works for them. So for example, journaling might work for some people and not for others. Sure. Um, walking or doing push-ups, something physical might work for some people and yeah. not for others. You know, people have incorporated more fruits and vegetables into yeah. them. We had a fruit and veggies challenge. Um, and, and so I think the the most feedback that I've gotten, the most common feedback I've gotten is it forces people to really pay attention to their bodies and their minds and what their needs are mm -hmm. and to take better care of themselves. And that's yeah. where the whole component of self-care comes in, um, you know, there's not a lot that I personally can do. If you have a toxic workplace, that, that's not something I can help with. Right. Sure. But I can help with the personal piece of helping the employees develop these healthy habits. And it's really about building resilience. Sure. So and and I'll use the term. I, I have this analogy. My husband loves it. But I 
I think it's helpful. I've used it with groups. I've used it with clients and they found it helpful. Okay. It's what I call the self-care anchors. So I want you to, to imagine you are a ship on this very, very rough ocean. Okay. There's not a whole lot you can do about the ocean. And the ocean is the workplace environment, the public, the world yeah. we live in, the reality of pet overpopulation, animal abuse and neglect, that sort of thing. That's the ocean. There's not a ton we can do to control that. However, there are some things we can do to control that ship. We can throw out an anchor. And what does that look like for you? Well, for me, one of my anchors is weight training. Okay. The days I go to the gym, I have more energy. My mood is better. I can handle stress better. I just, I just feel better mentally and physically. So that's one of my anchors. Well, but that's not enough. Okay. So I have, I have more self-care anchors. If I'm feeling very, very stressed or very, very angry and it's summertime, I am on Lake Michigan flying through the air on my jet ski. Awesome. The name is literally anger management. So that is a self-care anchor. Another self-care anchor of mine would be music. Yeah. I listen to music as therapy. And so what I encourage people to do is think about all of your own self-care anchors that they're not going to calm the ocean. They're not going to cure quote unquote compassion fatigue, but they help calm the ship, which is you. Yeah. So they help you kind of navigate those rough waters a little bit better, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, it helps you kind of take your own power back when it comes to yeah. your mental health and that whole aspect of you can't control what life is going to throw at you, but you can control how you react to it and how you work through it. Yeah. I yeah. love that. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we even have to take a bigger break. Sometimes we have to go in and dock for a while. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, if, if you want, if you want a lifetime of living at sea, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to learn to calm your ship. You're going to have to take care of that ship. You don't want any holes. You don't want any leaks. No. <laughs> and you have to dock from time to time. It's okay. Yeah, I think I think in the U.S. especially, that whole, like, basically glorifying being overworked and, oh, yes. and overly productive has gotten to the point where it's so ingrained in everybody that... It's toxic. That it, well, yes, it's extremely toxic. And that just kind of compounds that feeling of helplessness when you're just like, I don't know what to do. I can't fix it. I can't fix the people who come and yell at me because we're charging too much. I can't fix the people who refuse to get their dog to the vet. I can't refuse to, you know, all of, or I can't fix those people, though, whatever the case may be. And it's like, yeah, unfortunately that's never going to change, but then there are things that you can do to make that easier for you to just ride out the storm. <laughs> yeah. It, it, okay. Uh, imagine this. So let's say some organization out there takes my suggestion and gets a, a big old uh, punching bag, right? Yes. A set of boxing gloves in, in the break room for <laughs> staff to go at it whenever they need to. You you can have someone that the, the, the client or the customer is just really pissing them off. They mm -hmm. can say, I got to take five minutes. I'll be right back. Go do some deep breathing and just hit the crap out of the bag. Or you can have someone who gets yelled at day after day. It builds up. It builds up. 
and they snap and they tell the customer to go to hell. They walk out on the job. I mean, they they develop an ulcer. They have to yeah. go on, on, on leave. I mean, there are so many other things that can happen, so many negative things that can happen if we don't give people an outlet. Oh, I agree. And I think another very underrated part of this whole, like, I guess this whole idea is just changing the owner or employer's mindset as well. Like, like you were saying as well about like not allowing and not tolerating the bullying. Cause like yeah. one of the bigger things that I used to deal with, at least when I would work in like brick and mortar salons was that idea that, oh, well, this person's been a longtime client. They've spent yeah. so much money with us. You just have to suck it up and deal with it. Yeah. And that is so harmful because you're alienating the people that work for you by doing that as an employer. You're saying this person's money means more to me than the way they treat you. Yeah. And, and what does that say about your own perceived value? Yeah, exactly. I have actually walked off of a job from yeah. a similar situation to that. I There was just nothing else that could be done. And it was very obvious that I wasn't going to be respected in the way that I felt I should be. And, and, and that was your way of docking your ship. Yeah, exactly. You and realized I I'm either going to capsize mm -hmm. or I'm going to have to dock the ship and find another boat to work yeah. on. And unfortunately, I feel like we've got so many people right now who are just, they're staying in that extended, like docked situation yeah. because the, the workplace is, is very slow at the moment to kind of catch up to that, that level of, Hey, we actually do care about the people who are working for us. I'm very, very excited to see that like on the groomer groups that I'm on, on Facebook, there are so many salons that are doing like Friday morning, for, <laughs> Friday morning yoga with the whole salon yeah, yeah. stuff like that. I think that is fantastic. Yoga is a good one for me. Love it. Oh yeah. And, yeah. So I love seeing things like that, but even more so, I feel like it's, we got to tackle that really, really just icky mindset of, oh, well, if somebody's paying us money, you just have to tolerate whatever they throw at you. Cause that's just not how the world should work. <laughs> well, let me ask you, you know, is losing that customer going to be, is, is going to cost more than the turnover? Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but I, I do run my own business. And yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the answer is the turnover is going to cost more. Well, turnover is far more costly. Training new employees and getting them onboarded is far more expensive than keeping your already established customers, uh, not customers, your already established employees. And especially in a trade where, you know, for groomers, especially where we've built up that rapport with our clientele. So yeah. if we leave, there's a good chance we might take some of those people with us. So that's going to cost that. you like triple what you thought it would, exactly. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also think about the morale of the staff. Yes. So if there's a constant, you know, if there's a revolving door syndrome, what is that going to do for the morale of the staff? First of all, it's going to lower the morale just in general. It's also going to have this, this mindset of, you know what, I I am not going to invest too much of my energy in this company because I might be walking out that door like yeah. everybody else one day. There's no sense of community. How we roll around here. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I'm certain, am I going to get close? If I'm a new employee and I see pe people constantly leaving, am I going to get close to employees? 
Probably not. Yeah. Cause there's no sense of community. There's no, exactly. there's, there's no bonding if everybody's here one day and gone the next. Kind exactly. Of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think employers really have to kind of look past, oh, well, a wellness program is expensive. It takes time. It, you know, it takes time away from work, work, work. What, what, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. And, and I think too thing. many people are very short-sighted. Yeah. Um, you, you, you really, especially today's culture and, and, you know, the, the generations coming up, they expect a wellness program. As um, they very well should. Yeah. You know, even just a few decades ago, there was this different mindset where it was like, get yourself a good job, kid. They'll take care of you for life. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, it became less and less about that and more and more about, okay, so if I give you the favor of hiring you, what yeah. are you going to give me? And that's where that, that culture shift, it has to be stopped and it needs to go a little bit more in the other direction because our employees, the people who are on the ground doing that hard work, physical, emotional, and otherwise, they really are the ones bearing the brunt of all of the, the abuse from clients and customers. They're the ones that are developing those emotional attachments to the animals in their care, the people who own those animals, because that's also a whole other part of the grieving process is when we yeah. lose a, a client, a human client that we love. Yeah, too. Absolutely. Things like that. And so if you actually take care of those people and you acknowledge that, yes, I'm involved in this business, I own it and everything, but you guys are the ones that are really on the ground in the trenches doing the, the work. And I appreciate you for it then I feel like we can get back to that place where it's it's way more symbiotic for everybody, where the employees are way more excited to be there at work. They're happier to go that extra mile, both for their employer and for their clients, patients, customers, whatever the case may be. And then it's just, it kind of, it's a, a cycle of, of good things instead of this nasty one that we kind of keep getting stuck in. Yeah. And, and maybe like you said, maybe we can kind of reverse this mindset and this culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can go back to, you know, you hire someone, they're a lifer. Yeah. They're, they're loyal. They're dedicated because you yeah. are loyal and dedicated to them. Yeah. I mean, like my husband, some of his very best friends are from where he used to work. And I never experienced anything like that, really. Work was just kind of, it was, yeah, there were people that I got along with. I enjoyed spending time with at work, but it didn't turn into any kind of like long-term bonds and everything. And I feel like I missed out on that, but it was just because there's so much high turnover in anything to do with animals. And I feel like if we can get to that place where people actually feel appreciated, wanted, and like what they're doing really matters, even just to the person that they are directly working under, then we can get back to that place where it feels almost like a second family at yeah. the job that you're working at. And for some people that can mean an awful lot. Some people can mean everything. Oh yeah. I mean, it would for me, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. I've, I've worked alone for the last, I don't even know how many years now, just because I didn't particularly love the environments in other people's salons and working alone is the best way I knew to control my ship mm -hmm. and keep mm -hmm. myself from feeling like I was just 
drowning in all of the drama. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a lot. And I mean, if you're a vet tech or a veterinarian, you can't necessarily work by yourself. I'm in the lucky position where I can, but even that has its drawbacks. I don't have other people to help me restrain a large dog. I don't have other people to help me with some of the issues that I could do if I had just even one other person there with me, stuff like that. But it works for me for now, at least. So I'm lucky, but it, it would be very, very helpful if more people would just kind of remember that the community can sometimes be more, more valuable to their employers than the paycheck itself and yeah. anything else going on. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, this kind of, kind of reminds me when you talk about veterinarians and vet techs, you know, so many of the kind of jobs in this field really involve life and death decisions oh, yeah. and death, um, you know, actions, whether it's surgery or, you know, um, and so <laughs> I don't know about you, but I am, if I knew that my veterinarian was sleep deprived, burned out, um, numb from compassion fatigue, you're, my dog's not going under your knife. Exactly. If we knew the kinds of things that other, that these people who are literally dealing with life and death repercussions, we wouldn't trust them to yeah, deal yeah. with those things. So why are we not taking care of that, that exactly. type of issue before it becomes a problem where, oh, they made a mistake because they were so tired, their hands were shaking in surgery exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. I want my vet to be calm and yeah. rested and nourished. And I want his or her ship to be very, very steady before I'm putting my dog uh, or, or animal in their care. Yeah, you want to show up the best that you possibly can. And you want anybody who's working with your animal, yourself, anything to also be showing up the best way they possibly can. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would like to maybe go to a little bit lighter and fluffier topic here. Do you have any <laughs> your own? Oh, warm, fuzzy time. I do. I do. I have, um, I have seven rescue babies. Oh, wow. I have two dogs two bunnies and three birds. Oh, okay. So tell me about the dogs first. Cause I want to save the birds for last. That's okay. Be okay. <laughs> so I have a, a little pit mix. Okay. Um, she was, uh, running, running the streets and okay. uh, took, took her to the local shelter. She was never claimed. Um, and so we, we adopted her. Um, our second dog Clive, uh, adopted Della so he was, con we found this dog constantly in our yard <laughs> and he would, he would just, he was really skinny. He had a tapeworm and it was just, he was just a mess. And turns out he was our neighbor's dog. Oh. And uh, our neighbor said, well, I'm going to get rid of him because, you know, he ain't, he ain't staying on the property. Okay. And we're like, well, I mean, he's clearly in love with our dog. <laughs> so, so we, we adopted him. Um, I think he adopted you guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yes. He, he chose, he chose his family. And it, again, it was a good thing. Like I said, he, he had a tapeworm, he had an ear infection, he, uh, trigger warning for some people. The previous owner was going to neuter him. The, um, uh, how can I say this? And keep the old fashioned farmer's yeah, way. Okay. We'll say the old fashioned way. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, know. So like, nope, 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 nope. We'll take him. We'll take him. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's how we got little Cliver. 
um, our two bunnies, one princess um, came from a hoarder. Oh. Um, yeah, so she, she's our little special needs bun. She's got some some issues still from that. Sure. Um, and then Barry uh, was found, uh, he was found as a stray. And so we adopted him through a local bunny rescue. Awesome. And then Raz, I uh, adopted, um, she was surrendered by an elderly couple because they were, they just couldn't care for her anymore. She's an eclectus parrot. Awesome. And then my two little parakeets, Niles and Daphne, they were abandoned in some motel room. Oh. So that's how the bird rescue came across them. And then we, we rescued from, from them. So awesome. That's, and I have a husband and uh, that that's our little family. I was going to say, is your husband a rescue too? <laughs> so so my, my husband is actually, when I met him, he was not so much an animal person. Um, and, and I'm a vegan as well. And he, he was not. And I, the man has become all about, all about veganism, all about animal rescue. I mean, that's fantastic. It, it's yeah. So he, he not only supported this lifestyle, he, he really embraced it. And so I am, I am very, very fortunate. Um, I know a lot of people don't, you know, have that, that kind of support. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I have that support. That is, that's fantastic. And what is it with like non-animal men winding up with the the crazy animal ladies? Cause that's how my husband was too. <laughs> I, I don't know. And it, you know, I mean, I, I definitely grilled him when we, when we first started dating. <laughs> I'm like, uh, do you hunt? No. You fish? No. Are you going to shove meat in my throat? No. Okay. I'll go out with you. <laughs> so that was kind of my criterion. The next yeah. thing I knew, I went over to his house and looked in his fridge and it was stocked full of soy milk. I'm like, well, he might be a keeper. Yeah. I was going to say <laughs> at that point, it's like an aphrodisiac. <laughs> yeah. And then when he asked me to move in with all of my rescue animals, I'm like, yeah, okay. Yep. That is definitely He's a keeper. A keeper. <laughs> So when I met my, my husband, I had my two little Havanese dogs and he had, um, well, technically the, his dog belonged to his kids, but obviously he's the parent. So he's doing most of the caregiving and that was it. And then, well, actually I had a couple of ferrets at the same time too, but since he and I have been together the last five years or so, we've now got my two Havanese still and his kids' dogs still, but now we also have my mom's dog living with us and we have two new cats, uh, both rescued as well. And then we have, uh, we're down to our last ferret, but mm. ours, we, we always talk about our house as a zoo. And I tell him all the time, um, it's going to only get worse. <laughs> there will always be more animals that need a home. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, we're actually down because I've typically in my life I've had around 10. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and it's usually consisting of, you know, of course, dogs, bunnies, and birds. Um, but you know, we we've we've typically had um the little guys that unfortunately don't last very long, um, like like hamsters and, yeah. and mice. Um, we, you know, we just try to uh give them a, a home. We we had this one little hamster. He was so he was so old and so ratty and you know, the shelter was just, they used to make fun of them and it just kind of broke my heart. And I'm like, I, I don't care if this hamster lives a week. 
he's going to live his last week of life in the lap of luxury. Absolutely. This little guy ended up living for, for a few more years. He was, awesome. he grew his hair back on his little bald butt. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was just, he was a little precious little, we, we just love the little guys. So I feel like whenever you work with animals, you always kind of wind up with the, the quote unquote misfits. Oh, absolutely. I was the same way when I worked at, when I was in high school, I worked at uh, PetSmart. And I was one of the people that like cleaned the cages and caught the fish and rang up crickets and stuff like that. And that was kind of one of my, my first animal jobs. Before that, I had like done some volunteering at shelters, but I was really young and didn't have the option to be like paid for it. So that was my first paid animal job. And I would, we would occasionally get like mice, gerbils, hamsters, whatever that couldn't be sold because something had happened to them. They got injured. They had some kind of skin condition, whatever. That was how I wound up with all of my little critters is oh, yeah. we would have those animals that couldn't be sold. And I would be like, okay, send them home with me. They're mine. And like, at one point we had a mouse come in that was pregnant before mm. she even came to us. So I was, they were, they were going to euthanize her because they couldn't yeah. sell her. I was like, uh, uh, no, she's coming home with me. I'll find homes for those little babies. And yeah. I did. And I had other little mice that had uh, like a persistent ringworm uh, infection, something like that, to where it just wasn't safe to sell them to somebody else that didn't know what they were doing with it yeah. and everything. So I took him home to, he didn't live for longer than I think maybe about six months, but mm -hmm. that six months that he did have was in absolute luxury. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I love taking home the the misfits the ones that nobody else wants because it I mean it feels good first off but second off it's also just like I don't know it makes it feel extra special whatever time you do get to have with them <laughs> and it kind of brings me back to the title of my book you know as, yes. as you know it's based on the starfish story and that's one of the things that kind of keeps me going personally is remembering that it made a difference for that one Yes, I absolutely mm -hmm. love that. It's yeah, it's a perfect metaphor for any animal welfare, anything. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's just your own personal pets, if you can yeah, make yeah. things Whether better for one animal. With the ringworm. Yes. Bald-butted hamster. <laughs> it, it makes all the difference in the world. And again, mm -hmm. even if it's for six weeks, six months, six years of their life. Yeah. All the difference in the world. Yeah. And that's what we're all here for. That's what we want to do. We want to make yeah. a difference for all of our little fuzzy critters. <laughs> but got to, got to take care of ourselves too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I guess my last question, I'm just checking to make sure. Oh, actually, I do have another question before my last one. Your book is such a great resource Thank for you. all of us working in the animal industries. Can you tell us a little bit of the... The, the process, uh, what inspired you to write it and just what everything was like with that? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I started, <laughs> memory serves. Um, I think the book came out in 2016 and it, so the first edition, um, I released a updated expanded second edition just this past February. Mm -hmm. The first edition came out I believe in 2016, which means I wrote it. In, it, it took about a year 
Okay. Um, the entire process took about a year to write, edit, um, you know, put into production, everything took about a year. So that means I started in 2015 and I believe it's right after I graduated um, oh. from, from grad school. That's and quite so, the accomplishment right out of school. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing about grad school is it, it's, it's weird. It's like you are going and going and going and all of a sudden they give you your degree and you're like, oh my God, now what? paper <laughs> to write. There's no internship to go to. There's only like your, your job is now looking for a job. So you have those yeah. hands and it's it really freaks you out. <laughs> Something they don't talk about, but they, they really should. And so at the time, what, what I decided to do, um, we had moved back to Michigan where I'm originally from and I could not find any jobs uh, for therapists at the time, which is weird because today, I mean, there's, there's a huge shortage, but oh, yeah. back then I couldn't find anything. So I said, well, you know, I wanted to open up my own practice eventually. So <laughs> no time like the present. <laughs> uh, so I opened up a, a private practice, just myself at the time and only had a handful of clients as I was building the practice. And so I said, you know, I've kind of had these ideas kind of kicking around in my head the more I learned about mental health, the more I learned about compassion fatigue. And I wanted to, like I said, I really wanted to give back to that community. So I thought, well, I can only see a handful of clients at one time because mm -hmm. you can only work with so many people on your caseload. Why don't I write a book so I can kind of quote unquote, reach the masses, you know, absolutely reach states, reach people in other countries, reach people who maybe don't want long-term therapy. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, I just kind of just started writing. Um, it was very cathartic. Um, it, it, it turned out to be therapy for myself. I had to face a lot of demons I had been stuffing down. Sure. Um, because I, I was a euthanasia tech. Um, oh. And so it, like I said, forced me to kind of process a lot of my own stuff, come to terms with sure. some things um, in my past. Um, forced me to start taking a look at my own mental health and doing something about it. Absolutely. Depression since I was 12. And so, it, like I said, forced me to really start taking a look inward. Sure. Um, so yeah, like I said, it, it, it took about a year um, from start to release uh, publication. And uh, yeah, it, the book's been you know, very successful. And nice. so- Late last year, I decided, you know, there's kind of ideas starting to pop up in my head again and things I just wanted to add to the book. And I thought, well, what's stopping you? Go ahead and add them to the book. So I updated sure. it, added about 5,000 words and um, came out with a new cover, which I am in love with. If I, if I can just say, I just, I love it. it. I love the new cover so much. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled with the new cover. And uh, yeah, so um, so that's that's kind of the the process in a nutshell. Well, awesome. Can you tell our listeners where all they can find you on social media, on the internet, wherever you'd like to be found? Sure, sure. So the easiest way um, is to go to my website, and that is animalwelfarewellness.com. Okay. Um, on there, you'll find information about the virtual wellness program. There are links to the book. Um, I also recently released a coloring book called Color Away Compassion Fatigue and uh, a journal. It's called Saving Starfish, a self-care journal 
for the Animal Welfare Warrior. There's links to that. There's blogs. There's a, a free resources tab that people can find anything from like guided meditations and breathing exercises to like different worksheets. So for example, I have a worksheet on self-care anchors. People, awesome. It's a coloring sheet. So you can, if you're into that, you can color the worksheet and then kind of label the, there's seven anchors hanging from the boat. You can kind of, you know, I recommend people fill that out and then post it where sure. it's accessible. Keep it on you, keep it yeah. near you. And so when you're really feeling distressed, you go, okay, is there anything, is there any anchor I can drop right now? Yeah. Just kind of calm the ship just a little bit. Kind of keep it on the forefront of your mind. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And sure. there's a blog article on the stages of change, you know, which okay. we talked about. There's a blog article on workplace wellness strategies for mm -hmm. leadership. Um, so yeah, um, you can contact me there. You, you can also, um, there's a link for my Facebook account and my Instagram account. I think LinkedIn might be on there too. So okay, there's an email address. You can, you can contact me. Awesome. Well, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I am so glad that we got to connect and talk and I, I hope we're going to be able to keep in touch and everything as well, because I am thrilled about the work that you're doing. I'm oh, so excited you. to see someone out there specifically looking out for the emotional needs of, of people who are experiencing that kind of trauma and emotional just difficulty on mm -hmm. a day-to-day -day basis. It's very necessary. And I'm so glad that there's such an amazing resource out there. Oh, thanks, Rachel. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Well, thank you very much. And I guess we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care.